Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we're speaking with the brilliant Clint Smith. Clint is a staff writer for The Atlantic, as well as an award-winning poet. His 2016 collection of poems, called Counting Descent, won the 2017 Literary Award for Best Poetry Book from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, and was a finalist for an NAACP Image Award. Clint's also well-known for his two wildly popular TED Talks, The Danger of Silence and How to Raise a Black Son in America. But today, we're talking with Clint about his latest book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, which was an instant New York Times number one bestseller. And I have to say, this book was so powerful, extremely educational, and I just loved getting to talk to Clint about his research process. He went all over the place, including to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello Plantation, Louisiana's Angola Prison, and even attended a Confederate Veterans Day celebration, all of which we talk about in this interview. This book was fascinating, as was our conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy Clint Smith. Clint, welcome to It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, I mean, well, and you're all pro set up. I think, you you know, you're way more pro than I am, which is saying a lot here. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, obviously, we are here to discuss your new book, How the Word is Passed. But before we begin, we have a little ritual. We do hear it. It's lit. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but we like to ask each one of our guests if there was a book that was instrumental or a game changer in some way in, in terms of how you approach writing. You know, this is a podcast about Black books and writers. Mm. So what was that book or books for you? Oh, man. Um, I did. I So I, I love this podcast. I started listening when I listened to... Uh, Disha's episode, which is pretty recently, I think. And loved having her. Yeah, and I just thank you for listening. Secret Lives of Church Ladies and uh, what a book. I, I told her I'll never think of Peach Cobbler the same way again. <laughs> um, it was such a such an amazing collection of stories. Um, oh, man, a book that has been central for me. I mean, I think, especially for this project, in so many ways, the slave narratives were. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Frederick Douglass's series of memoirs, Harriet Jacobs' memoir, uh, a lot of Equiano. And, you know, the thing, and maybe we can get into that, the thing about those is that they were so transformative for me uh, in giving me an intimate sense of what sort of emotional and psychological and physical impact this centuries-long intergenerational institution had on people and their bodies and their minds. And also, it's important to remember that those folks are not that their experiences are not reflective of the vast majority of enslaved peoples. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think this is like, it's answering your question, but also giving a sort of thing that I've been thinking about a lot is just like putting the more famous autobiographies of enslaved people in conversation with the lesser known narratives in the Federal Writers Project, those collected by some historically black colleges and universities in the early 20th century. And, and just reminding ourselves that as important as it is to read the the stories of Frederick Douglass, to hear the stories of Harriet Tubman, to read the stories of uh, Harriet Jacobs and a lot of Equiano and, and so many others, that the vast majority of enslaved people did not escape. The vast majority of enslaved people did not fight their slave breaker. The vast majority of enslaved people did not learn how to read. The vast majority of people were people who were trying to carve out 
opportunity and meaning and purpose and love in their lives in the midst of just unfathomable circumstances. And so I think to bring it back to your question, like I think that those narratives are so powerful and for me are also an entry point to a broader set of narratives that should be taken just as seriously. Well, I think this book is also an entry point. You know, this is, um, first of all, really impressive. And uh, an instant, number one, New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It is a big deal. Uh, I mean, this just came out at the top of June. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're speaking now three weeks after the fact, and you are now a New York Times bestselling author with, <laughs> with this book, which, you know, it's, it's really an astounding piece of work in terms of just the amount of research alone. You know, we've had a lot of, um, we've been really, I, I think, really lucky on this podcast to talk to a lot of amazing writers of all genres. And I love how many of you are also, um, you know, like you're a poet as mm. well. You know what I mean? And I see that that made it, a lot of that made its way into this book as well. This is not a straight up history narrative. This is not a straight up even like kind of reverse migration story. Mm or research project, like there's a lot of language here that I see you trying to place us there, not just in the past, but even in the present, you know, the way you describe certain people, mm-hmm. the way that uh, we we see the trees, you know, we see the the standing inside the slave cabin at, on the Whitney plantation and, and the shafts of light coming through. Like, I think all of those things are so evocative. And, you know, I, I sense that you were trying to do the same thing in terms of this reckoning with the history of slavery across America, which is your subtitle, that you were trying to do the same thing for our ancestors in mm. that sense of, you You have this amazing line when you're in New York, because you visit like eight places here. I'm going to double back to that because that in and of itself is like wild. But hmm. you have this line, and I'm going to be paraphrasing, where you talk about, you know, this idea that we're always talking about reckoning with the humanity of enslaved people. And you say, they were always human. Like there was never, there's, there's no question that they were human. Hmm. And how, I guess, we choose as a nation and even as descendants to recognize that, I think is something that we have to constantly reckon with, right? Because we have a tendency to flatten them as well. So how did this start for you? Like what, what was the genesis of this tremendous undertaking and how did you start to outline this framework of where you wanted to go to explore this well thank you so much for those those kind words i should have you do the introduction for all the podcasts that i'm on (laughs) um that's very very generous of you uh yeah so the origin story of this book is that in 2017 i was watching the confederate monuments come down in my hometown in new orleans and so i was born and raised in new orleans and lived there uh, my entire childhood until Hurricane Katrina, and then ended up finishing school in in Texas. But uh, my family's still in New Orleans, and, and New Orleans is is a part of me in ways that I think I continue to discover every day. And so I was watching these Confederate statues come down and started thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority Black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. That to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents live on a street today named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And thinking about what that means and what the implications of that are, because we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that societies tell and those stories embed themselves into the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. And so that's not to say that taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee is going to erase the racial wealth gap, but it is to say that these things are all part of a 
an ecosystem of ideas and stories that shape how we understand what has happened to communities and what communities need moving forward um, to make amends for, for what has happened. And so I started kind of getting obsessed with how slavery was remembered and misremembered in my own hometown. And for a while, I thought I would do a project centered on New Orleans. I thought maybe, I, you know, my first book was a collection of poetry, and I thought I would maybe do a collection of poems in which each poem was about a different monument in New Orleans, because there are hundreds. I mean, there are hundreds of monuments, uh, over a hundred monuments, school buildings, and other places named after Confederates or slaveholders. Um, and we're in the process now, the city of changing it. And so that was the initial idea. And then I think I realized that it needed a little bit more more space. And I also was started getting interested in how places beyond New Orleans were thinking about this. Um, and so it sort of transformed from a poetry collection to a more extended narrative. And instead of being just focused on New Orleans, it started to think about what is this patchwork of memory look like in different places across the country and, and across the ocean and trying to write a book that was a, a quilt of sorts in, in how it captured the different ways that slavery is understood and talked about and curated and remembered in different places across the country. And part of what I wanted to do was just find places that were representative of the spectrum of how this story is told, um, you know, because the book is about eight places, but it could have been about a hundred thousand and eight. You know, there's places all across the this country that carry the scars of enslavement and that are deeply embedded into the sort of physical landscape of, of our country. So, so yeah, then that it kind of just evolved as, as I went on and and ultimately became what it is. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's interesting because I think, you know, I mean, we're both journalists as well. So, you know, it's like I know research is a huge part of what we do every day. And so, you know, you think you you go into this thinking you know some of these stories or you know about these places. And I was really uh, interested in how you teased out some of these details that, you know, I mean, I lived in New York for two dozen years of my life. And while I knew about the African burial ground and Wall Street and, you know, some of the details that you teased out there I felt were so striking to me as both a reader, as a resident. And, you know, talking about this legacy, you know, you do draw these really great through lines. Like I'm thinking again about the Whitney and you talking about the surrounding community that still lives, you know, still a predominantly Black community and it's still predominantly impoverished. Um, what were some of the most surprising things for you as you were kind of excavating and doing this search? I think I was constantly surprised by my capacity to be surprised. I mean, part mm. of what is important for folks to know about this book is that this book did not begin four years ago, you know, 
by a person who was an expert on the history of slavery. I mean, the book itself is both an effort to create a book, but also a personal exploration, right? And a personal excavation. Like I, I had a moment in which I had been spending all this time with these scholars whose work has transformed my understanding of slavery in this country. And, you know, I was reading The Hemingses and Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh by Donna Ramey Berry, The Soul by Soul, Walter Johnson, Race and Reunion, David Blight, Slavery in New York, Leslie Harris, Ira Berlin. I mean, so many books. And I, I was becoming more acutely aware of how little I actually knew about this thing that I thought I knew a lot about. I was like, I'm a thoughtful, informed, college-educated person. Like, I know about slavery, you know, like... But there's so, so many nuances and complexities and idiosyncrasies, both in the human context and like how, how deeply and profoundly human these people were. And then the horror of it, right? Like not the, just the small things that like I would never really consider. I mean, even thinking about like a simple example is how, you know, when I was younger, I'd be like, why didn't people, you know, the only books that I was reading were Frederick Douglass and, and stories we're hearing about Harriet Tubman. And I was like, well, why, you know, I'm reading these stories about these people who ran away. Why didn't everybody run away? Right? Like that's, and that's part of the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it makes you think that this is something that someone could escape if they wanted to. And that if you don't, it is a reflection of you rather than this monstrous institution. But like, I remember something somebody said on a tour um, at the Whitney, and they were like, you have to consider that for many people, even if they wanted to run away, there was the threat of what would be done to their family if they did, mm-hmm. right? So this is not even an individual decision. It never, I mean, it is never simply a reflection of one's individual desire or lack of desire to do it, but we have to think of the the web, the the sort of the community web of of ways that this spectacle of fear would manifest itself. And so that's just an example of of like a thing that seems so intuitive. But then I heard it and I was like, I guess I never considered that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was reading all these books and, and I was like, I need to, there's more I need to understand about this. And so started going to these places. And in terms of surprise, I mean, there were so many, I think Angola prison was probably the most surprising in the sense that I've I've worked in prisons and jails for the past 7 years and so I'm I'm familiar with the carceral landscape and and intimately so obviously not as intimately as someone who's incarcerated um but but have been teaching in these places for for some time now but going to Angola was was one of the most haunting experiences of my life for context for folks Angola is a the country's largest maximum security prison. It is 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island Manhattan. It is a place where 75% of the people held there are black men, over 70% are serving life sentences, and it is built on a former plantation. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would so clearly be a global emblem of anti-Semitism, and rightfully so, it would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would be so clearly counter to our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country where the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom were sentenced as children, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which has since been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States, who go out into fields and work for virtually no pay 
pennies on the dollar. Yeah, seven cents an hour. Seven cents a dollar is what Norris Henderson, yeah. the, the formerly incarcerated man that I was there with, told me. Uh, he, he spent 30 years in Angola. And he was like, I worked for seven cents an hour picking cotton in the same fields that my ancestors might have picked, right? It was so visceral for him. Yeah, that that was a hard chapter to read. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna front. That was that was a hard cha- yeah. <laughs> chapter, uh, a necessary chapter. But really, as you said, I think you're right. The word for me would would be visceral, mm. really troubling. And oddly enough, the part that got me, I mean, I, I won't say it got me the most, but you know, you kind of hook us in right from the beginning because you talk about the gift shop. Yeah, that killed me. Yeah. Like I was just like, what? Like, what? Yeah. What even is this, you know? This kind of, like, commodification of this, like, of incarceration. Like, what in the world, you know? And of of people who are still there, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, it's... I've not visited the museums of the former concentration camps in Germany. But I think that, from what I understand, I think they have a bookshop where, like, you can Mm. get, you know, books and things to reflect that you were but there. They don't have a mug with the cute little quip, a gated community. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that I mean, I think that moment was. I had to. I did a double take. Like I don't do a lot of that. I was. I was like, that's something people do in the movies. But I really. I like physically turned around, and then I turned back around again, and I was like, is that real? Like on the shelf was the silhouette of a watchtower, and above and below it, it said, Angola, a gated community. On a, on a coffee mug, surrounded in there in the shot glasses and baseball caps and sweatshirts and and like and, it's cute and stuffed an, there were stuffed animals in which the and the stuffed animals had prison clothes on. Um, I took a picture of almost everything, but I couldn't. I didn't have a picture of that. I think almost because I was too shocked, and so I didn't include it in the book as because I couldn't exactly fact check it. But I'm ninety nine point nine percent certain that I saw a stuffed teddy bear wearing like a black and white striped prison outfit. So yeah, I mean I I was not prepared for that. And specifically specifically the the gift shop to your point cuz that was just it's one thing for that institution to not address its relationship to the history of slavery, which is I think egregious enough. But like for there to be a gift shop that has products in it that are almost making a mockery of what thousands of people are continuing to live through every day in that prison just seems so it was so beyond the pale um and I and i was not emotionally prepared for that you know you you also take us on like a full circle journey here taking us to jefferson's home which is a place i have been as well is i think i think really hits at the core of something that you come back to later in terms of how people do not like this compartmentalizations of american history and of America's relationship to slavery. And it I don't know that there's a a public figure, a historical figure, or a founding father who better embodies that than Jefferson. This this idea of like these two things coexisting at the same time. Why were you drawn to that story? I mean, obviously there's, you know, the more sensational aspects of it and the Hemingses and all that, but why was that a story you felt like you needed to explore firsthand? Yeah, I mean, I think you you alluded to it just now. But Jefferson I think personifies so much of the the contradictions and cognitive dissonance of this country in that America is a place that has provided millions of people over the course of generations with opportunities for upward mobility and wealth accumulation in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined. 
and that it has done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And that both of those things are America, right? Like America is the story of both of those in a recognition that both of those are fundamentally entangled in one another. And I think Jefferson similarly is like, he wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children that he had by Sally Hemings. He wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document, notes on the state of Virginia, that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. And I think, so he in many ways embodies the complexity and the contradictions of this country in ways that I thought were and the hypocrisy and the hypocrisy. I mean, just the <laughs> the 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 blatant more and the moral inconsistency and the yes. I, and the idea of knowing something is wrong but doing it anyway because mm-hmm. of what it affords you, because of the power it gives you, because of the lifestyle it allows and makes possible for you, which I think is a story as old as America. And. And so I wanted to go there. And I also wanted to understand like how a place, Monticello is interesting because I think it is a place that has evolved over time, right? So the how, you know, if you talk to somebody who went to Monticello 10 years ago, 20 years ago, their experience would be fundamentally different than my own, right? Um, yeah, I did not have that experience when I went there. They've yeah, obviously changed some yeah, things no, up. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, I think that that's so interesting to me, right? Because that is a part of, if, if this book is about memory and how we remember or fail to remember slavery, it felt really important to have a place that changes, right? And that is responsive to new information and that is responsive to new history and that is responsive to the a shifting political and social landscape, right? Like you can't, you couldn't, you can't, well, I was going to say you can't have a plantation that's not telling. I mean, you clearly can because there are many across the country. But like, it would be so abhorrent if the home of Thomas Jefferson did not directly confront and discuss the hundreds of enslaved people who made his life possible. And I think even going beyond that, part of what they do that I appreciate is not even just saying this is Jefferson's relationship to slavery or this is how Jefferson was an enslaver and and this is his hypocrisy. It's a recognition that that place is not just Jefferson's. That in many ways, it more fully belongs to the generations of enslaved people who lived there, right? It belongs to the Hemings, it belongs to the Grangers, it belongs to the Fawcett's, it belongs to all these people who cultivated that land, who made that land and that home possible, and who quite literally were on that land for more time than he was. Jefferson, again, was away in D.C. and Paris and Philadelphia and New York for extended periods of time during his uh, service to the U.S. government in his various positions. And so, like, these, this was their home. This was their community. And we can't talk about Monticello and arguably should not even center Jefferson when talking about Monticello without a really robust humanizing conversation about the larger amount of people who lived there for for such a long time um and yeah it, it was it was the first chapter of the book and it was one of the first places i went and i thought that it would be you know because i also could have written a chapter on like george washington and mount vernon uh, or james madison and mount pillar both you know former presidents who were also enslavers who also had plantations in virginia but i thought that and i think this was the case for a bunch of different places is that i could go to one place and it would embody the themes that are reflective of other places, right? So going to Monticello speaks to something that is happening in other 
plantations in a former presidents in Virginia, going to Angola, speak to something that is in in many ways happening in other plantation in other prisons throughout the South. Uh, you know, going to Blanford Cemetery is reflective is just one Confederate cemetery uh, among so many that exist across the South. Well, yeah, let's talk about that because you know that was also a really. Uh... You know, that that was wild, yeah. <laughs> that chapter. <laughs> that is, that's the adjective I, I use when people Ooh, ask. Bless you for going going into the belly of the beast there. You, I mean, for our listeners, you uh, attended a Confederate Veterans Day celebration. <laughs> and I was I like, this is a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I I just I, I you're writing about, you know, filling the eyes on you. I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't know if I would have had the fortitude <laughs> to do it. Yeah, no, it's um it was a it was a wild experience. It was a wild experience. I mean, it sounded like it. But you know, in the next chapter you take us and this is another full circle moment because when you started this book, obviously, you know, I mean, had we even had had America even acknowledged Juneteenth as a whole yet? No, it's so interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, know? no, it's so fascinating how that works. Because like this was this chapter when I went to Galveston for Juneteenth. That was Juneteenth, two thousand nineteen. So this yeah, was before so, yeah. George Floyd. This was before right. everything that has happened the past year. So it is fascinating for it to come out in this moment. Um, Absolutely, like you never, Absolutely. like you can never know what moment your book is is coming out in. And I'm, I'm really glad that I went almost before it became more nationally recognized. Like, I think there was, and I, I obviously have not been back to this event. So for, for context for folks, I went to Galveston, Texas for Juneteenth to spend time with the Black community in Galveston, who has been celebrating, obviously, this holiday for, for a long, long time. And many of the people I was with were descendants of people who had found out via General Order Number 3 from uh, Union General Gordon Granger that they were free. And, and so had been free for and two and, been, and a half years. And that they had been free, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That this was had been kept from them. And and it was such a powerful moment because it became so clear how this was not this wasn't an abstraction to them. This wasn't just a holiday. It wasn't just a symbol. It wasn't just a word. It was like this is it was an heirloom. It is what made their lives possible. It is like in their body. It is in their bones. And I think that's why I have this scene where I describe everybody standing up, singing, lift every voice and sing. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I grew up, I went to a black church, I went to, you know, black family, black school. So, so like, I've heard that song as much as, you know, so many of us have. But it was something so different, like being on that land, in that place, with those people, in that moment, on that day, singing this song whose lyrics I almost heard in a new way and understood in a new way as being, again, something that was not merely an abstraction, but but that was what actually made the people in that room's lives possible. And I think that's the essence of what I was trying to capture in so much of the book. Like, there's something so unique about being in the places where this happened and being with the people who've been impacted by this place and and what it means and what it represents. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I'll remember that day for the rest of my life. Well, you talk about how even that local celebration had its ties to MLK Day becoming a holiday. And, you know, obviously we're locked in some other conversations now that 
<laughs> may go on forever because, you know, we we like to just put together commissions to discuss studying something, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, so we won't be holding our breath for <laughs> any kind of <laughs> major movement on uh, what it would mean to really compensate the descendants of enslaved people. But again, I do think that this book is an entry point. I, I, I think of all the ways that I, I think it could be useful or could be used, but how would you like people to use this book? You know, part of what I want the book to be is hopefully an entry point for folks into this like really remarkable, robust body of scholarship from historians who have spent their lives, again, doing this. My, this book is only possible because of the historians who uh, whose work has, has transformed our understanding of this country. And I also want it to be a sort of ode and, and an homage to the public historians who who don't, you know, they're not going to, these aren't folks who, who win Pulitzer Prizes or get tenure or win awards or get the same accolades. These are people who are on the ground in these places doing the dirty everyday work in the shadows of telling the story of this country to people who might not be encountering it in other ways, right? I mean, Monticello gets, I think, before the pandemic, got almost half a million visitors a year. I don't think there's any book about slavery that's been read by half a million people that I can think. I mean, maybe there is, uh, you know, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, but like, there aren't many. And so there's such a unique opportunity to reach people who might not otherwise encounter some of this information in other ways. Um, and I think the role of public history is so important. And and I learned so much. And, you know, I, again, like there's something so dynamic about being there, right? Again, I, and I'm somebody who went to these places having read these dozens of books and still when I got there was not prepared for the viscerality of the experience and the the deeply emotionally the emotional investment that I felt in these places. And and so I want this to be a, a tribute to them. And and I'm a former high school teacher. And as I say at the end of the book, I wanted to write the sort of book that I would have wanted to teach my students. Um, and so I hope this is a, a helpful tool for teachers and students. And it's the sort of book that I, I wish I had read when I was in high school, the sort of thing that I, I wish I had access to, because I think I spent a large part of my childhood with a sort of psychological or emotional paralysis in the sense that I was told over and over again by this country why people who looked like me lived the way that we did or why we found ourselves experiencing the disparities that we did. And I didn't have the language. I didn't have the toolkit. I didn't have the framework. I didn't have the history with which to push back against it and so much of this book is animated by attempting to fill in those gaps that I felt as a young person. Uh, and so to the extent that this book can fill in any gaps that young people have, specifically young black kids, um, I think all the time about James Baldwin's 1963 essay, A Talk to Teachers. And it's based on a speech he gave to a group of New York City educators. And one of the things that he says in it is that black children are told over and over again by this world that they are criminal. But the role of the teacher, and he's saying teacher here literally, but also as a metonym for the larger society, the role of the teacher is to help that child understand that even though the world tells them that they are criminal, it is in fact the society and the history that has created the conditions that that child is growing up in and the circumstances of that child's life 
that is actually the criminal. And for many of us, that's very intuitive now. But I think having been a high school educator, I know how it is not necessarily intuitive for for so many. And I want this book to be one contribution to a body of work that is attempting to help young Black children understand that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but it is because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And at the same time, that you don't have to accept the reality of those communities as inevitable, that they can be changed, and that we can both hold history and agency at the same time. So... Well, as a uh, former educator myself, <laughs> I, I thank you. And that, I, that is how I hope it is, is uh, used as well. I think you've done something really, um, well, as Ibram X. Kendi says on the cover, we need this book. Hmm. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about how the word has passed today. And again, congrats on the success with it. But more than that, congrats on completing something that I think is going to be really useful to exactly the people that you're hoping to reach. So thank you, Clint. Thank you so much. This has been a a real pleasure. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. Now, before we go, we usually like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. I will admit I'm between books at the moment, but I will soon be digging into a collection of stories called How to Wrestle a Girl by Vanita Blackburn, and I will get back to you on how that is. But for now, that's it for the week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, keep it lit. Keep it lit.